What's up, tribe? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bodyweight Built. Bodyweight Built has decided to jump on and support the show, which is obviously huge for me and the podcast, but also a huge step in the right direction for independent media. Bodyweight Built is an all-in-one fitness app designed by fitness trainer and buddy of mine, Matty Fox. I spoke to Matt just before Christmas and was telling him how I'd hit a plateau with my regular strength training. He recommended that I join the app, which I did. The results have been fantastic. I've shed body fat. Uh, My strength has gone through the roof, including functional strength, which is something that I've always struggled with. In the app, there are multiple 8- and 12-week programs, all designed to be done without a gym and even equipment, which was great for me because I only had a few kettlebells and dumbbells, um, so it's been fantastic. On top of those programs, there's nutrition tips and tricks, yoga classes, plus much more. Listeners of the podcast, I want you to head to mattfoxapp.com to get started for just one dollar for the first month just one dollar there's no locking contracts you can cancel at any time so if you decide after a few weeks that it's not for you cancel you've lost a dollar no harm done that's mattfoxapp.com i'll also attach the link in the description of this podcast ladies and gentlemen ladies and gentlemen podcast podcasting from sydney australia this is the prime podcast independent unfiltered and uncensored beginning in three two one dr peter mccullough welcome back to the show your third time on here and we're joined today by john leek how are you i'm well thank you thank you both for joining me um so what's been i think the last time we spoke uh dr mccullough back in i think it was november end of november they were just commencing the the vaccine rollout for the five to eleven year group. Um, so, first thing I wanted to ask you is, what are you seeing in that space since that the rollout began? Well, Chris, I can tell you that the vaccine rollout uh, continues unabated, and this very uh, uh, substantial conglomeration of public health agencies, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, world governments, health systems. It's what we call the biopharmaceutical complex in our new book titled Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Uh, You know, the, the vaccine program worldwide has started out with an assumption that has been pounded into people that the vaccines are safe and effective with no evaluation of emerging data and without any room for scientific discussion. What we're seeing over here at the moment is a lot of justification for these issues, uh, in particular, the cases of myocarditis and and heart-related issues. Um, Now, they're, they're putting it down to many things. I've seen climate change used as one example, many different things. So I wanted to ask you as well, obviously being a cardiologist, what were you seeing in the lead up to COVID? Was there an increase in heart-related issues or was it pretty consistent um, until COVID and the vaccines hit? No, in fact, there was a decline. There's been a steady decline over decades. Uh, coronary care unit mortality has been really plummeting over half a century with uh, better uh, critical care techniques. Rates of heart attacks, you know, the most deadly form of heart attacks called an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Paper published from Dallas at Parkland Memorial Hospital uh, around the time I was a student here in Dallas. The inpatient mortality 
with just the, the treatment available at the time, now 30 years ago, the mortality was 20% for that condition. The modern day mortality at uh, you know, the major complex I, I'm at now in Dallas is 2%. We've made massive progress in cardiovascular disease. Rates of heart attack are down. Rates of stroke are down because blood pressure control, lipid lowering therapy, and then acute intervention with stenting uh, and improved surgical techniques for the heart. So listen, the cardiovascular side, we've been doing great. Cancers, they've made tremendous progress. And then all of a sudden enter COVID-19 and all, you know, all the actuaries now have reported increases, increasing overall mortality in the population starting actually in 2020. Are you saying that increase in heart-related issues in children? Because I know at first when we had the conversation, um, the risk of, of myocarditis and, and similar was quite low in children compared to late adolescents and, and adults. So are you still seeing that, the sort of a lower incidence of those conditions in children? There was a disturbing report by House and colleagues, MMWR, December 31st issue, 2021, for the first time, we saw laboratory indicators that the hearts of children were being damaged with the COVID-19 vaccines ages 5 to 11. Uh, you know, I think it, it couldn't be more disturbing. The health uh, adv advisory research team, HEART, in the UK is actually, in January, put in a formal inquiry to the uh, UK government to look into excess deaths that are occurring in uh, young individuals age 15 to 18 in the UK. Why are so many young people dying? We know that the vaccines have really been rolled out in that age group. It's terrible. It really is. And what we're seeing is a lot of athletes from around the world. I think I saw only about a week ago, um, I'd like to think it was maybe the Boston Marathon. Was that the one where there was quite a few issues in that race where I think it was something like 16 or 18 people had to retire early due to um, cardiovascular issues. So, we're seeing it around the world with athletes. Like it, it's not, you don't have to be a doctor to, to see that something's seriously going wrong. I mean, what is it like, how are they managing to just keep it hush? Like it seems if the average person can see that something's going on, I mean, young, healthy athletes don't just drop with heart problems. It doesn't happen rarely, not to what we're seeing today. I mean, how, how are they managing to just sweep it under the rug as such? Well, maybe yeah, I, John, can, maybe John can comment about this, the psychology of this, of what's happening. I, I think that if you go back to the beginning of this story, as, as Dr. McCullough and I do in our book, what you see is a, a mass coordinated propaganda campaign that was remarkably uniform across the world to create as much fear as possible about this SARS-CoV-2 virus. What I thought was notable about it was there was absolutely no distinction made of, of risk profile in the population. It was represented as a sort of unassailable uh, virus that you know nothing in medical science could do anything to treat it, to, to, to diminish its severity. And it was equally dangerous to everyone, regardless of their age or their health status. And the relentlessness of this messaging, you know, everyone, there's not, nothing that could be done about this. We all had to just stay at home, shelter in place, social distance. Um, 
so if you generate that level of widespread fear in, in, in the population, and then you come to the population and say, but help is on the way, we're developing a vaccine. And when this vaccine comes and is mass deployed, then this terrible threat that places all of us in imminent danger will be diffused. So I think what we're looking at is a massive psyop using tried and true methods of propaganda that has created a kind of fait accompli. It's like we've gone for it with the vaccine. It's, it's, it's a massive coordinated effort to prepare the, psych, the, prepare the population to receive it with the assurance that it will protect everyone and enable us to go back to normal. So after you set this in motion and pursue this endeavor with such energy and, and, and global uniformity, it's very difficult to then reverse this. I mean, you've committed to it. And then if you go and sign up for the shot because you believe that this is the solution, well, now you've committed to receiving the injection. So I think psychologically, you're going to be very reluctant to acknowledge the indications that, well, in fact, this doesn't work. And in fact, it, it has a risk profile that can really, can, can really be quite severe. So I, I, there's a reluctance to, to accept, to acknowledge that, um, well, we've been somewhat suckered in this. And it's probably going to take a while for this dark and uncomfortable realization to really sink in. Yeah, I think it's the people don't want to believe that the government would lie to them because, you know, in, I guess, the, the mentality of people in the West is that we're, you know, our governments are the good guys and that the likes of Russia and China and North Korea are the bad guys and that our government would never do such a thing to us. And I think a lot of people are having a hard time, even if it's looking at them in the face and they can see that something's really not right here they're very reluctant to accept that because they think, no, no, there's no way that's possible. They would never do this. You know, what would they gain from doing it? They wouldn't do it. So I think there's a lot of denial um, based on that alone. Maybe it's a bit too, you know, it's, it's a reality they don't want to accept, but especially now in hindsight, as time goes on, it's becoming more and more obvious that something's amiss. And I mean, if you look at from day, I mean, when I had uh, you, Dr. McCullough on in August, you were saying a lot of things in that episode that no one had heard in Australia before. That's why that episode went extremely well because people hadn't heard it before. They're thinking, no, this is, you know, um, and now that episode was labeled as, as misinformation. And, and, you know, it was actually a website who broke down that episode bit by bit and, um, and took each of your claims and tried debunking them. But what we now see is that, no, no, well, hold on. That was, everything was right. What you said was correct back in August. And now we're just seeing the, the results of that. And, tragic results of that but and that's the problem with this uh, i guess obsession that they've had with with misinformation is that they're sort of freezing science in time i remember back in august they were saying that if you got this vaccine you were very unlikely to get the virus we now know that's completely false so but th there's no apologies to, to people like yourself 
because um, they've they've pretty much called you a liar. They've pretty much said that you're lying and, and you're spreading harmful information. And when in fact you were right on the money. Um, so there's that obviously, which has been going on, and it's this misinformation campaign has been. I've never seen anything like it. And you're starting have to see a similar. Have, yeah, go on. Have, have, have you ever seen the movie, the famous Australian film called Gallipoli? Yes. Yep. With with um, a young young Mel Gibson. Mm. So I, I I I really think there's a strong analog with with the first world war i'll 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 be brief the the first world war was something that had been in planning for a long time there was a perception in europe that it was probably going to come to a blows come to blows between the great powers most notably between france and germany so for decades there was planning for this eventuality and australia got drawn into it because it was part of the commonwealth the film gallipoli shows these young, handsome Australian men who you've, you've, you've come to like, you've been following their, their, uh, their life path up to this moment where they're ordered to just run into machine gun fire down in the, in the Dardanelles near, near Turkey. And it's just clearly not working. I mean, the whole Gallipoli campaign, which the Australian army got drawn into, it just wasn't working. I mean, it's like, okay, you see that discharging 50 caliber machine gun fire isn't really getting you anywhere. It's just, it's just mowing down young men sense senselessly. But I, there is this element of, you know, once one of these massive projects involving the weapons industry, the, the de- defense departments, the, the railroads, the finance guys, the bond the, the the sovereign bond guys, war bond guys, once once the train leaves the station and gathers steam, there is a profound reluctance to pull on the brakes. Hmm. The, 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 the people that are driving the train don't say, oh, you know something, we screwed up. Our plan didn't work out. Our strategy did not take X, Y, and Z into consideration. So we'll pull the, 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 the brakes. No, it's a doubling down. It's a tripling down. And then there becomes this concealment because then there's the recognition. In fact, you guys did not follow standard safety protocols. There were corners that were cut. It was done in enormous haste. I mean, warp speed, that alone. Do you know anything about the history of science? These new novel things that are done with great haste, there's almost always unforeseen consequences, negative unforeseen. So we all know this, but now that you've committed to it, now that you've committed the soldiers to the field, there is a reluctance to admit that it didn't work out. And Australia has an interesting role in this. The chair of CEPI, which is a big pandemic planning and and vaccine development organization founded by the Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum, CEPI, C-E-P-I, plays a very large role in all of this. And the chair is an Australian lady named Jane Halton, who is a longstanding Australian bureaucrat and finance. She's, she's been around for a long time and, and now she's in this, this uh, CEPI organization. So there are a lot of key players in this 
that are from Australia, she being the most notable. And how the Australian people with their British common law background, um, their parliamentarian background, how they, the Australian people, found themselves under this strangely tyrannical government. It's, it's one of the mysteries of the story. It's, it's very strange. Mm, it is very strange. And it, it surprised me. Um, it surprised a lot of people. I mean, how easy the people were, were, were controlled. And, and I guess in some sense, like if you speak to a person face-to-face off social media and you have a private one-on-one chat with them, a lot of people will acknowledge that something's wrong. They do. But there's a reluctancy to speak about it publicly. I guess it's, it's they don't want to be sort of the odd one out. They don't want to be seen as sort of, that's what the media do a great job of, is labelling people. So if you, if you say anything against the vaccine, doesn't matter what it is, anti-vaxxer immediately. Um, and the same as, as any conspiracy theorist, you name it, they've got a label for everything. And people are reluctant to, I guess, step out and, and, and uh, be labelled. Uh, they'd rather sort of just sit back and just go along with it, I guess, believing that, you know, it'll all be over at some point. And that's what we saw with the two weeks to flatten the curve right at the beginning. We were, we were told two weeks. Uh, two weeks turned into a few months. Um, we sort of got over it, went back to some form of normality, and then we'll hit with um, the Delta variant. And that was months and months of lockdown. I mean, Victoria was, I think, 247 days in lockdown. It's staggering. I just, I mean, it's I just incredible. can't imagine. It's, it's, it's incredible. And, I mean, we had people that were getting shot at with rubber bullets down in Melbourne for protesting. That, that's it. That was protesting out in the street. They were getting shot at by police. I mean, there was people that were, you know, slammed on their heads in train stations by police. It was a really horrible time. And, and that's going to be felt for a long time because a lot of people have lost trust in the police. They've lost trust in the government. They've lost trust in our health agencies. And, you know, just last night I highlighted something. I said that there was no, throughout the pandemic, there was no messaging of, 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 of actual, of true health preventative measures like diet, exercise, supplementation, nothing. It was mask up, vaccinate yourself, get vaccinated and shut up, essentially. That, that's, that is another element of, uh, in this that is, is really notable. Dr. McCullough and I, as, as we work through this, we tell stories of some of these pioneering doctors that just really went for it, kind of the old school, just like everybody who's sick, you know, is welcome to come to my clinic and I'll do the best that I can. And this is hands-on doctoring, risk of contracting the disease be damned. I mean, like real old school doctoring. And one of the pioneers or innovators was a lady here in Dallas, Texas named Dr. Yvette Lozano. Very interesting. She just, like I said, just old school doctoring. If you're sick, come to my clinic and I'll treat you the best I can. She discovered, and she's not some eminent academic, uh, you know, research physician. She's just a family physician that high blood sugar closely correlates with disease severity. So that's just observational, but ultimately countless studies came about validating her observational studies. And so why wasn't there any talk 
with people knocking off the sweet stuff, hmm. losing weight, um, you know, high blood sugar and excessive uh, weight um, correlate with severe disease severity. But I never heard a single public health agency talking about this bigger picture approach to public health. It was just the vaccine. Yeah. And that, that's Chris, Chris, I wanted to mention that, uh, you know, the news broke late 2020 and 21 that we could actually spray, um, uh, you know, medicinal nasal sprays up the nose and kill the virus and dramatically change the outcome. There were 12 overall studies, three large randomized trials, one done by Chowdhury uh, in uh, Bangladesh using dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide. Can now use a a product we can buy, we can actually buy some of these. One's called Clear, another one called Cofix RX, colloidal silver. There's many ways to actually kill the virus, but, but when somebody's coming down with this, to actually start to actually uh, use a nasal spray, wash, sniff it back and spit it out, have it go all the way around, is enormously effective. Do you know when the news broke and we put this into our protocols uh, that we got emails through the system saying uh, uh, anti-vax doctors are, are pushing iodine, patients will swallow it and uh, die of iodine toxicity. Uh, do you know that um, uh, one of a couple of our state representatives ac actually had outrage? They said, how come our public uh, health agencies are not teaching people at least about cleansing the nose? Uh, you can do it you know, once or twice a day to prevent the illness if you're out around people, especially our senior citizens, and then in, in active treatment, uh, I have to tell you, I do that every day in my practice. I've got patients with COVID-19 right now. I think that is line of defense one to do acutely. Everybody in Australia can have a bottle of povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide there in the house uh, and can easily do this with a spray bottle or a bulb syringe, uh, but yet it was actively suppressed. Uh, there must've been various operatives that through the doctor's email systems, MedPage today, Medscape, whatever, to actually put a damper on any of these approaches. It rose to the level of a congressional statement from one of our representatives to say, how come they can't even do this? Why is this being suppressed? That's incredible, I mate. Mean, have you ever seen anything like this throughout all your years of practice? Never. I got to tell you, this hit me like a sledgehammer. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, do you know we're moving into year three? Year three. I had a patient call me uh, over the weekend. Uh, she's elderly. She's just had sinus surgery. She has other medical problems, heart disease. She's got COVID with severe symptoms. Uh, she calls her doctor in Texas here. He says, categorically, there's no treatment for this. None. He's not going to do anything. And she's in a panic. She calls me, Dr. McCullough, didn't you tell? I said, well, start the washes, start the other things, start the nutraceuticals and supplements, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, over-the-counter famotidine. Uh, uh, and then we actually went on a scramble to find the monoclonal antibodies. We have a monoclonal antibody called beptilibumab, 2cc infusion. And then we moved into drugs. We have hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Now we have Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. I got her Paxlovid. Then she needed uh, steroids, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, aspirin, oral colchicine. The other drugs we do in sequence combination. I just checked in with her and she's on day three and she goes, I think I've turned the corner. 
The point is, Chris, the first three days is where all the action is in our seniors. If she would have gotten nothing by day 14, she would have been on the ventilator in the hospital. Yeah, which normally doesn't work out too well. You know, there's been, it's the first few days and, and when I've, I still haven't caught it, so I wouldn't know. I'm, I'm still unvaccinated. I've never worn a mask. Um, I haven't caught it. So neither has my wife or my children, as far as we know. Obviously, we haven't but, caught but it. But Chris, tell me the <coughs> truth. Have you lost weight over the last year or so? I lost weight in the last two weeks. I had the flu. And let me tell you, that was something that wasn't very enjoyable. So I lost about, I think, four kilos in, in a week and a bit. Because you looked thinner to me. Oh, good. I'll try and keep it off. I'll try my best to keep it off. But um, yeah, we just had the flu. We went through the the whole family, everyone. And it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Well, you know, John's just had an experience with COVID at a holiday gathering in his house. Yeah, it was. Um, so I, I was exposed to COVID uh, so many times. Um, I, I kind of took a macho, um, you know, throw caution to the wind approach here in Dallas. And you know, went out on dates with COVID um, infected girls. And I mean, I, I was really kind of, um, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I just thought, I don't care. I, ho I hope to get it and then I can be, be, be done. With um, <laughs> no, I, I had a, I went on a funny date. We got a funny girl from Louisiana. This is a cute story. And we, we went out to dinner and we had this marvelous dinner. And, and I said, well, what do you think of, what do you think of dinner? And she said, well, it sure looked good, but I didn't taste or smell a thing. Um, so anyway, she, she, um, she was COVID positive. Um, so, but I never got it in spite of trying to get it. I, I never got it. But over the holidays when Omicron came, just this past Christmas, um, everyone in my household, they all came home to visit my mother for Christmas. Everyone got it. But what was, what was, well, two things were notable. First of all, the family member who introduced it to the household, at any rate, the one who fell ill first and who had it with the greatest severity, who was really laid up, was the only person in the family who was vaccinated. So that, that, that seemed notable, anecdotal, but notable. The other thing is my mother had had COVID we treated her with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc, and she really felt started to, to, to feel better really the next day. Um, she did not get the Omicron variant over Christmas in spite of being in the same household with multiple family members. An infant who she was hugging and kissing all day got it. The infant, that was remarkable because the infant started with a rash and then she had a mild cough in the afternoon and then the next morning she woke up and was fine. It, 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 was, it was like an, a 12-hour clearance of the thing. It was, it was quite remarkable. Dr. McCullough, explain that. Why do these little kids clear it so rapidly? What, what... You know, children have more ACE2 receptors, which actually have to stay intact. The virus actually destroys the ACE2 receptors as it's trying to invade the body. So the children have many more ACE2 receptors, but uniquely their secret weapon is a thymus gland. They have a gland that's underneath the upper breastbone into the neck that produces T cells. So the children have tremendous immunity in the sinuses and 
And as everyone knows, they frequently get viral infections, but it rarely progresses to pneumonia. And, and they fight this off quickly. I, you know, around the Christmas time, we had also family at my house, little four or five-year-old got COVID. I, you know, I had my stethoscope, I examined, I could hear some changes in the lungs. And by the next day, clear as a bell and everything's fine. So I've learned with children, it, no treatment is needed. Uh, there may be children with cystic fibrosis or congenital heart disease or lung disease that I've advised on. And, and at the most, we've used some inhaled budesonide, inhaled uh, uh, butyrol, weight-based uh, aspirin, very brief, and then oral prednisolone, oral azithromycin. And we're able to get the kids through the illness uh, every time. Sadly, in the United States and probably Australia, the only children ever hospitalized for COVID or even those who died with COVID, it's because they were denied early treatment. Yeah, well, that's what we're saying here. And I think it was something like um, a study that was done. Well, actually, it was a report released by the ABS, the Australian uh, Bureau of Statistics, showed that 91% of all, like, of all COVID cases or deaths, 91% of people had two or more uh, underlying health conditions. And in children, that amount was, I think, 98.7%. They worked out to be of children had underlying health conditions. So it's very rare but that, that's what was very bizarre was that during the initial wave that we had the schools uh, remained open there was no talks about closing schools down there was certainly no talk of of masking or vaccinating kids but that all changed with delta variant and i noticed the messaging was changing from the from the health department i could see that happening in real time and i said i remember i said back in august when we first spoke i ended up so i think on the podcast i said it that um, it's a matter of time before they start vaccinating children. And I made that decision based on the fact that there's a lot of money on the table. And let's be honest, they're driven by money. So if you've got a whole group of people from, you know, especially at the time it was, I think 16 was, was the minimum age for, for vaccination. Five to 16 year old, there's a lot of money on the table there and they will do anything they can to, to get it into the young children. And that happened a few months later. And I think now in the US, if I'm correct, they're, they're talking about, well, they've just put an application through to give, I think it was the boosters to the, the five to 11 year old group uh, as well. And also Moderna um, are looking at six months to up to five years. So they're sort of taking it down to the lower age group, but it just seems so insane. It's so illogical. Like I don't know how they're, how they're getting it through. I don't know who's at the TGA or the FDA that looks at it and goes, yeah, okay. I think that's reasonable um a thing to do because it's not affecting children well one of the things that we examine in our book um robert f kennedy jr does really a, an exhaustive uh, uh examination of this we we look at this within the context of telling a story about another very harmful drug that really became a scourge in the united states called oxycontin it's a mm. To an opioid analgesic that really became a scourge. I mean, for years, this was really pushed out in a widespread level in the American population. And its, addict, its, its addiction risk was obscured and, and, and downplayed deliberately. But one of the things that you see with, with, with the OxyContin story was that it was a prime example of what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. calls agency capture. Is that a term that's familiar to you? Well, yeah. so in other words, I, I'm, I work at the FDA in, in examining 
dr drug approval applications. And somehow it has signaled to me um, that, hey, someday I might leave this bureau, bureau, bureau job, this bureaucrat position, and I might have a job on the board of a big pharma company, or I, I might you know, become a, a corner office boardroom executive of a, of a pharma company. So you, you see these documented instances of the very people who are supposed to be enforcing safety procedures, they, the, the drug gets approved, the harmful uh, nature of the drug is obscured or downplayed. And then a couple of years later, the guy who's working in the agency overseeing this approval process just happens to land a job on the board of directors. Mm. Um, so how does this happen? And you see that it's something that we see in the financial industry, the, the bond rating agencies just before the financial crisis. They, they were deliberately obscuring the, the risk profile of, of, of these mortgage-backed securities. But then subsequent to working in a bond rating agencies, they get jobs and positions within the industry that they're supposed to be regulating. So I think this, this, this whole business of agency capture um, is, is something that we examine in our book. Yeah, that'd be, that's, that's right. And that story, I've watched a few documentaries on that. One was um, documentary was called Crime of the Century. And then the other one was a, it was a documentary. Like it was all based on true events, but they turned it into a drama show called Dope Sick. Correct. Which is a great show. Um, yeah, yeah, about the Sackler family and Purdue Farmer and what they did with, with the Oxycontin. That's, you know, to, to think that that doesn't happen or will never happen again is extremely naive. Well, and, and notice, yeah. notice that Dope Sick and this, this really marvellous book about the Oxycontin fiasco uh, called Empire of Pain. It was published in the middle of this COVID business in 2021. And what was notable was that the media pundits who gave favorable reviews to the book, I didn't hear any of them mention, well, you know, I wonder if the state of affairs documented with Oxycontin might bear some relation to what's going on with these vaccines. But it's like, yeah. With the vaccine, it was some sort of special panacea and, and the concerns we have about corruption and agency capture and all that. In the minds of many people, th these lessons just didn't seem to apply. No, and, Which, and let's not forget, let's not forget that, that Pfizer in particular have been fined billions of dollars for being deceitful, for being deceitful, for, for um, manipulating doctors, for life, there's so many instances of them doing the wrong thing. I think if you if you're not skeptical of a company like that, I mean, that, that's almost like your your neighbor is known. Like if you know your neighbor has a history of break and enter and and stealing, would you let him look after your house house sit? Of so course we, not. We have a chapter in our book in, in which we talk about this this strange psychology, in which it, it would seem that if criminal conduct or malfeasance is being conducted out in the open, there's a, a strange psychological sort of contradiction here. It's like people don't see it, 
they seem to have this idea that a criminal enterprise would be clandestine. It, it, it would be secret. You, it would be very, very difficult to, to, to reveal it. To, but if it's just happening out in the open, we seem to have a hard time recognizing it. It's, it's, it's a strange sort of reverse psychology. But your, your point is well taken. It would be like the guy who has a criminal record for coming to dinner parties. And then after everyone's had a few drinks, he dismisses himself to go to the bathroom and then goes and steals your wife's jewelry. It would be like, that's, that's his reputation. He comes to your dinner party and around nine o'clock, he says, oh, excuse me, I'll, I'll be right back. I mean, like, you know, this is happening. It's right in front of you. It, it's, so we, we talk about how a lot of what's going on, this organized crime, it's out in the open. It's, it's declared. The documents are published by the organizations themselves. But people seem to have a strange blind spot. Yeah. So Chris, I wanted to give some clear-cut examples of agency capture when it comes to the mass vaccination program. So Rick Bright, who was in the White House, was actively working to block hydroxychloroquine to Americans, as Peter Navarro, who had reached out to me, was trying to actually you know, get hydroxychloroquine dri distributed to Americans. Rick Bright leaves, and he joins the Rockefeller Foundation which mm. heavily supports uh, uh, vaccine research and previously supported eugenics research. You have uh, the former FDA chairman a few years ago, Scott Gottlieb, is on the board of Pfizer, and he's advising Americans on CNBC to take more vaccines, as he probably profits from this being on the board of Pfizer. Now you have the FDA chairman after Scott Gottlieb, Stephen Hahn, he joins the venture capital firm for Moderna, and Moderna's making money on vaccines. You have uh, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, uh, and under court order documents, Pfizer has 1,223 deaths on their books with their vaccine within 90 days of release. An astonishing number, typically 50 deaths, a uh, drug is pulled off the market, no questions. The company is issuing recalls. We should have recalled all the products back, figure out what happened. Borla is out advising Americans to take third and fourth doses and pontificating the future of medicine at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, you have Mar uh, Stefan Benzel, a former CEO of BioMurieu, a, a French uh, in vitro diagnostics company. He helps the Chinese build the annex to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's where they do the gain of function research on the Wuhan spike protein. That's where they figure out the, the, the genetic code for the spike protein that Moderna has patents on. So what does he do after he helps build the lab? He joins Moderna. Moderna just had one employee. So he actually knows what's going on. He knows that the lab is built to help Moderna make the vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, which is not yet released out of the lab. This is all in the open. Parts of this are in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, but a great reference book is COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey by Dr. Peter Bragan. He's got every one of these documents and these moves heavily cited. It's in the open. Now, look, how sure are you on, uh, you know, 
a percentage basis that this was premeditated? What was premeditated? What 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 element? So we we know that the virus came from the lab. That that wet market theory is nonsense. We know that. So you got a virus that comes from a lab. You've got Moderna who who patented. It was the the, the sequence of the virus, wasn't it? If I recall, part of they- part of part of the genetic sequence that was later discovered in SARS-CoV-2 turned out part of that sequence was already patented by Moderna. And the chances the chances of them pat- patenting that sequence was extremely rare unless they had prior knowledge. Is that correct? You would have to talk to a biostatistician. What I have heard from guys who understand this is that it's it's impossible. I mean, there's I've talked with the Yale professor Harvey Risch, who's examined this very carefully with people who specialize in in this and completely impossible that it would ran just what they had patented this genetic sequence that they had patented just happened to randomly appear in SARS-CoV-2 a few years later by, by, by means of, of natural evolution. The thing that's suspicious is that I mean, we know it was plainly publicized. There were, there were even sort of celebratory press pieces going back to 2015 about how a, 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 uh, researcher, a very clever researcher at the University of North Carolina named um, uh, Dr. Barrick, Ralph Barrick, he was working very closely with the so-called bat lady at the BSL Biosecurity 4 lab in Wuhan, China. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I want to say Xing Ji, I think is how you pronounce her name, known affectionately as the bat lady. They had harvested these bats from these caves in remote areas of China, and they were examining these coronaviruses that were naturally occurring in bats. And what was presented to the world was, well, it's only a matter of time before you have a leap of a bat coronavirus to humans. It it makes this this interspecies leap from bats to humans, which is kind of an odd proposition if you think about it. There were theories that some Ebola cases actually generated children were playing with bats in in some village in Africa. So bats have been an area of interest is is a biological uh, uh, origin for viruses that could jump to humans. So what's being represented in all this is because this could happen someday, we need to start monkeying around with it in a lab. We need to start amplifying its function to infect humans. Should someday it naturally infect humans, we actually want to be experimenting with with this eventuality in the lab. But you think, well, now, wait a minute. I mean, what's more dangerous? This someday through an evolutionary mechanism, jumping from bats and caves to humans. It's not like humans spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time hanging out in bat caves. So which is the greater risk? A a natural evolutionary risk of jumping from bats to humans or 
these viruses that humans are deliberately amplifying the transmissibility to humans and labs conducting experiments, is, is that not the higher risk of this thing actually jumping into the human population? And so this is, again, it's all published. These gain of function uh, experiments conducted in the Wuhan lab. So, you know, the question is, did it unintentionally leak from the lab due to lax security protocols or did a state actor or a disgruntled actor or a criminal actor decide to do it intentionally. That would require a very, very exhaustive criminal investigation with full cooperation of the Chinese government. And I don't really expect that to no. happen. No, that certainly won't happen. Because, you know, it just seems to be that they were on the ball really quickly, rather quickly. I mean, hydroxychloroquine was getting blocked quite early on uh, in the piece. I mean, which seems like a very unusual thing to be concerning, like to be concerning yourself with. If, if there's an outbreak of a deadly virus and the way that they were going on about it initially, it seems like the last thing they should really be concerning about is blocking potential treatments. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like cutting the legs off the horse right as it comes out of the gate. I mean, you know, saying, well, we don't think this horse is going to win the race, so we might as well just put it down in the first, you know, 20 yards of the race. I mean, there was this instant and categorical rejection of these treatment modalities before any time, before anyone had had any real time to, 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 to analyze them. I mean, we, we start off seeing these signals of benefit. There's some observational studies that are done in China and, and South Korea and the South of France. There had been some earlier in vitro studies showing that hydroxychloroquine has potent antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-1 in vitro. So there was reason to believe that this might help. And it had a very good safety profile. I mean, millions of people had taken this for different conditions for decades. So this is one of the things we talk about in our book. Isn't it remarkable how what seems to offer a glimmer of hope is instantly shot down and blocked and 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 intrigued against and and uh so th this is this is part of this whole crime story of the suppression of early treatment that we document it, i think you said it right crime story because that's really what it is and it's, that's becoming more obvious as tom goes on that there's a lot of definitely criminal but there's a lot of deceit. There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of unusual things that have taken place in the past two years. Um, and, you know, the biggest one, in my opinion, is, is trying to tell doctors that they can't practice medicine on their patients or that they can't. Like doctors are getting punished, losing their licenses, having their clinics shut down and raided by the health departments like uh, Dr. Hobart here in Australia. Uh, he had his, his practice shut down and they went through it and, and took all his comp, uh, confidential patient files out of it, stripped his whole office bare. Um, there's been an attack on doctors. Um, if the doctors that dared to question and, and to, to move away from what they were being instructed to do by the likes of APRA in Australia and, um, you know, the CDC and whatnot in the United States, um, which is very unusual. I mean, 
doctors are doctors. They've just spent years studying and, and they have a right. If I'm a patient, I want to hear from my doctor. I don't want to hear from a board because a lot of the people on the board of these uh, health departments aren't doctors. And if they are, they've had very minimal experience on a face-to-face basis with patients. Um, that in itself is very suspicious. I mean, doctors should be really, you know, uh, assisted. You know, if a doctors think this is working, they should be giving resources and, and, and the opportunity to explore it further, but instead they're shut down and, and oftentimes quite brutally. Well, you understand the story. This, this, is, this is the story that Dr. McCullough himself lived through at you know, close range. I mean, I was kind of ringside, but he, he was in the ring. I hope your listeners, I'm going to figure out how to get the book to Australia. But all of this that you describe um, in a very um, articulate way, um, you, you're spot on. This is, this is what we, this is the story that we tell. Yeah, I'll definitely have to read. I said I'll um, just before we jump onto the book a little bit more. Monkeypox, what's going on? It's this is very unusual. Now they're saying that it's it's spread. Now this is just my theory. I'm not an expert by any means, but they're putting it down to a sexual transmission. Now to me, it seems very unusual that you would have, you know, uh, cases in 15 different countries at the same time with no connection to each other spread by sexual transmission that seems very unusual i mean maybe you know in 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 one location with multiple cases okay it makes a bit of sense but to suggest that every single case in 15 different countries has come from sexual transmission at the same time is very unusual chris i think everybody should be enormously skeptical monkeypox is part of the orthopox family It was described in 1958 in Monkey's first human case in 1970. Uh, There have been rare cases, you know, worldwide, it adds up to to hundreds of cases that accumulate over time each year. Uh, So it's, it's, you know, we know about monkeypox, you know, there's other skin rashes, you know, meningococcemia, uh, various pustular staphylococcal infections. Uh, So, you know, this is a, a dermatologic condition it's a zoonosis because it does uh, arise out of the Congo basin from monkeys. The United States, we had an outbreak in 2003, about 70 suspected cases, about four dozen confirmed, just treated with supportive care and, and they did fine. There have been some deaths reported over the years, largely in men with HIV untreated uh, deep in the uh, Congo basin. And uh, what's happened over time is almost just like with SARS-CoV-2, there's been planning do you know that there's been a planning for a monkeypox outbreak? And so there's been a therapy that's developed for it called Ticoviramax or TPOX. It's a cell surface receptor inhibitor. It's actually very effective. It's available orally, and then they just approved the United States IV. Uh, in addition, there's a company in the United States, uh, United States in the, in the um uh, the Scandinavia called Genios, and Genios has a live attenuated vaccine that was uh, approved in 2018. Now, the development for monkeypox has paralleled that of smallpox, and most of this is pre-developed in anticipation of bioterrorism with uh, a release of smallpox, monkeypox, camelpox, uh, cowpox, uh, you know, one of these pox viruses. And uh, so it's almost like a, a fear campaign. So there's been a whole development. 
Uh, in 2019, there was a paper by Simpson, another one by Beer that summarized all this. It looked like Genios, uh, some of the doctors were consultants for Genios, the vaccine company. The vaccine was approved only because it raised antibodies. It's never actually prevented a case of anything. The Genios vaccine is worrisome because it did cause heart damage. Uh, and there's been, actually been cases already just in uh, the early use of it where it's caused heart damage. So it's, it's tropic. Actually, the, uh, the, this vaccine is second only to COVID in terms of uh, COVID-19 vaccines in terms of causing heart damage. And then the Washington think tank called the NTI group, a nuclear threat initiative, works with the Munich Biosecurity Group to do a tabletop planning exercise about an intentional bioterrorism monkeypox outbreak. They have a timeline. The release date is May 15th, seven days before the Davos meeting at the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization meetings on the global treaty. It's as if it was drawn up on paper to happen to kind of juice fear into the system and potentially push these uh, levers at the World Economic Forum and at the World Health Organization. So at least four of the re reported cases, the releases, the pictures on the internet were old pictures that people found years ago. Some of them are black and white. They're obviously before we had color photography. So I think everybody should be suspicious. I'll tell you one thing that happened for sure. Last year, there was a case in Dallas, Texas of a man who came from Africa. He went to Atlanta, then Dallas. He had many contacts with people. He didn't spread it to anybody. Ultimately, they put him in the hospital because you know where show was going on. He wasn't sick. They gave him the ticoviramat orally, and he did fine. This was written up in the MMWR, published the April 22nd, 2022 issue. And the, the event happened back in August. Uh, what we've learned from this point forward, it was summarized in the Beer and Simpson papers, people over age 50, they're already protected because they've had the smallpox vaccine. So I had to call my mom to figure out that I've already had smallpox vaccine. So honestly, I don't have any worries whatsoever. If we were to run into a rare case like we did last year, we would use the, the drugs to treat it. What's happened though, is the United States in really a hyperbolic reaction has already pre-purchased 13 million doses of the Genios vaccine as if you know it, this was going to be a fait complete. Scott Gottlieb on the border of, uh, board of Pfizer have already introduced as someone as a character and regulatory capture, he's already advising America to do RIM vaccination, that is uh, do a perimeter vaccination of anybody who comes in contact with a patient who has this skin rash. And now the province of Quebec, Ontario has announced mass vaccination of monkeypox. You couldn't get a more exaggerated situation that's following a playbook for these global predators, what we call the biopharmaceutical complex. It is very unusual. And you know what? Prior to COVID, you wouldn't think much about it. You would think, okay, a few cases will go away. But now you're always on high alert. You think, okay, well, hold on. But a lot of the lead up to it is very similar to COVID. I know with before COVID, they had the, the event 201, which simulated a coronavirus outbreak. You had a similar thing, as you said, with the NTI. And what's interesting, I actually shared it um, in, I'll try and find it here. It was in September last year the uk ministry of defense ran a simulation on on software called spectator uh, and what they did was they ran a simulation of how to handle russian disinformation during a monkeypox outbreak <laughs> that was in september of last year now 
what I say, I thought you go, there's no way that's not coincidence. That seems like it's a bit too suspicious. Like, could they make it any more obvious? Like, Russia at the time, things were, they certainly weren't quiet in Ukraine, but they were much quieter than what we're hearing now. There was certainly no war back in September last year. Um, the fact that they would run a simulation to handle Russian disinformation during a monkeypox outbreak is extremely unusual. Yes, we, we, we look at these pandemic planning <coughs> uh, seminars and, and um, the, 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 they are very prescient. Well, what, what they're stating is a infectious disease outbreak is imminent. And, and we saw with event 201, I mean, it's really just on the eve of SARS-CoV-2 arriving. It's, it's late October, 2019. There's this pandemic planning um, simulation for a, a coronavirus outbreak. So um, I think that, you know, we have to grapple with the fact that these, these, and it's very difficult. It's like what you were saying with the known robber in the neighborhood, that um, these prospective even presented as inevitable infectious disease outbreaks, the way the, the biopharmaceutical complex has modeled this and built these public-private partnerships between national treasuries, international foundations, pharmaceutical companies, is that they're presented as opportunities explicitly. I mean, CEPI that I mentioned earlier, the, the Center for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, they issued a business plan in the year 2017 in, in preparation for the coming, the next pandemic. And the next pandemic, which is described as imminent, is presented as, in their language, an opportunity for investors and, and shareholders in the enterprise and the partnership. So I, I think the parallel with the military industrial complex is very apt. And we 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 uh, we again we 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 examine this in our in our book. Um, on that note, gentlemen, I need to take a quick break. We have some additional work we have to do this evening. I, I hope you gentlemen will excuse me um, if I uh, if I if I bow out. No, that's fine. We'll wrap it up uh, very soon anyway. So just on your book before we do go, when did you start writing the book? I. I started researching it with the eye of writing a, a true crime story almost immediately when this whole crazy story began. I, I began to, to keep files and, and records and, and, and to research the, the, the pandemic response already in March of 2020. But I didn't actually contact Dr. McCullough until May of 2021. Together, we worked on it for a year. I mean, he had obviously been doing his own very intense research since the beginning as a, a key player in, in, the, in the story. And much of it, much of the book um, details his own personal journey in this. But uh, the, the, the time span of our collaboration was almost exactly a year. Yeah, okay. So you, you were obviously very skeptical early on. I mean, to start collecting files in, in March of 2020. You must have known quite early on that something wasn't right. 
Well, I I sensed that what we were being told um, had distinct elements of implausibility. Um, I mean, the, the main thing was that we were all being told, everyone, also young athletes, children, we were all being told that we all had to be terrified of this, even though the data that was coming out of Italy, the, the greater Milan area, there was autopsy data. The Italians were pretty brave. They, they were the first to do, to, to do real pathology studies on, on SARS-CoV-2 victims. And pretty quickly, the conclusion was it's not killing otherwise young and healthy people. It's, it's a very, very risk stratified disease. It, it, the, 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 the factor for, for age was, it, it, Dr. McCulloch can speak about the, the, the precise epidemiological evaluation of this, but it was clear that it was primarily affecting people who'd either, who'd either reached or exceeded life expectancy. Mm. Um, so you're getting towards the end an actuary might say, well, you know, you, you probably have another six months, year, something like that. And then this novel respiratory virus comes to town, you get a big viral load of it. And that's kind of the final thing that, that you know, sends you under. Um, that's quite different from, for example, the Spanish flu of 1918, in which the median age of death was 29 years old. I mean, these were otherwise young and healthy people. Um, so you, you're presented with this, and then our public health people say, yeah, but everyone has to be terrified of it. It's not only a matter of identifying and trying to, to come up with measures to protect the vulnerable. Everyone has to be terrified and be locked down. That, that was my first clue. Yeah, okay. All right, John, listen, I'll let you go. Dr. McCullough, before we go, when are you taking a holiday? You know, I'm not taking a holiday till we close up this crisis. So I don't know how many more years we have, but I tell you what, they're not going to, not going to stop me, not going to stop you or John. Mate, you've been absolutely relentless from the beginning. And, and mate, I think a lot of people, obviously, including myself, are very grateful for the work that you've done and, and John as well in putting that book together. Um, I'll definitely be getting a copy of that. So um, COVID-19, COVID, what was the full title? The courage current... to face, yeah, courage to face COVID nineteen, preventing hospitalizations and deaths while battling the biopharmaceutical complex. Chris, try to order the soft copy, the soft cover. It's a little cheaper, and I bet the print runs are going to be much easier for you guys. Yeah, I'll have a look at that, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I appreciate both your time. Okay, see thank you, you soon. Thank you.